Hello. In the wake of the news of the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, we have a little one-segment one-off looking into an aspect of his legacy that I don't think is getting enough coverage at the moment. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Much of the debate about Gorbachev is very much on the slightly sterile axis of whether he was a saint or a sinner. Do we exalt his commitment to peace and his conversion to democratisation? Or do the deaths in the January 1991 crackdown in the Baltic states and the catastrophic handling of the Chernobyl nuclear accident make him a sinner? Well, look, I imagine Gorbachev himself would not have considered himself to be a saint, And if you can imagine anyone else who would have risen to that position in that system, a very, after all, carnivorous one, facing that many array of often extraordinarily difficult challenges, and who would have done everything right, well then, good luck to you. The key point, and I think this is something that I've long held, and it's something that I addressed in my very quick response in the Spectator's Coffeehouse blog, is that he learned... He learned from his numerous mistakes, and that's frankly pretty rare, I would suggest, in a politician or a leader. I mean, from, for example, the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, which at first, it basically triggered Gorbachev's and his team's old Soviet instincts. Clamp down, say nothing, hope you can get away with it, and so forth. And in fact, I think in in hindsight, that seems to have frankly shocked him. Shocked him how, although... Already by that point, he was talking about glasnost, about openness, that you know, this, this, this old instinct had, had uh, so quickly asserted itself. And from that, we saw glasnost afterwards being deepened and into becoming much, much more of a bottom-up rather than a top-down thing. So he learned from that. Likewise, look, in the very, very grim winter of 1990 to 1991, when the shops were bare, when miners were striking, when there was going to be fear that there would be power cuts, which at the height of a Russian winter is no small thing, he absolutely made the mistake of making an, a temporary little alliance with the hardliners, who seduced him with talk that, look, what we need to do is just focus on economic reform. We can deal with the po- politics later, but for the moment we have to do something about the economy. And we have to bring some kind of order and stability to a country that is ripping itself apart. He was seduced by that. And, well, part of the result was indeed this terrible Baltic crackdown. That It also, as we said, I understand was sold to him as if it was going to be bloodless. And likewise, from this came the attempt to freeze out Boris Yeltsin when he wanted to stand for the position of the elected president of the Russian part of the Soviet Union. Now, again, from his mistakes, from realising that this was a blunder, 
I mean, after the sort of mass protests in support of Boris Yeltsin, the sort of kind of almost, uh, say, ideological or intellectual godfather of Perestroika, Alexander Yakovlev, spoke to Gorbachev and said, look, what would have happened if there had been a clash? If one protester had died, all Moscow would have turned out to that funeral. And, I think, and Gorbachev came to realize the dangers in the alliance, the fact that the hardliners did not actually have the interests of reform or indeed the Soviet Union at heart. They were claiming that they were sort of reformers, economic reformers, just simply as a way of, of getting his support. And what happened? Well, actually, he abandoned that alliance, he repudiated them, and if anything, he moved even further in, into a ref reformist to the point of revolutionary agenda with his talk of a, of a new union treaty that would have totally reconstituted the Soviet Union into a genuinely voluntary union of nations from which countries could leave. And that, of course, in due course, led to the hardliners, August coup and the whole slide down into the end of the Soviet Union. So this is it. You know, he, he learned. He learned from his many failures. And the very fact of learning, the very fact that you actually have that belief that things could be done better, to me underlines a fundamental difference that I think characterizes the dichotomy between Putin and Gorbachev and helps explain the, frankly, very grudging treatment of Gorbachev's death that we have had from official Russia today. Um, and let's be honest, the classy thing is generally not to say bad things of the dead, but definitely we, we're getting a, you know, a, a very clear message coming. I mean, Putin himself is not going to be at Gorbachev's funeral, which again, I don't know if Gorbachev actually would have cared about that, but nonetheless, symbolically is very important. We have his uh, spokesman Peskov talking about the misplaced romanticism of the West that Gorbachev had. We have uh, spy chief and amateur historian Narishkin, who said that Perestroika, Gorbachev's restructuring reforms, has long become history, but today we all have to deal with its consequences. It fell to Gorbachev to lead the country in a very difficult period to face many external and internal challenges for which an adequate response was not found. So in other words, eh, he tried, he failed. As for Putin himself, uh, there was a, a very short, frankly, again, I have to say, considering the length of these things in other circumstances, insultingly short, um, statement that uh, Putin issued, which went up on the Kremlin.ru website, who said that uh, Gorbachev deeply understood that reform was necessary, and he strove to offer his own solutions to urgent problems. I will especially note the great humanitarian, charitable and educational activities that Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev has been conducting in recent years. So in other words, no praise, no recognition for what Gorbachev actually did as party general secretary and president of the Soviet Union. His only praise is for his charitable work afterwards. So there is this grudging, sulky tone to the official Russian line. And why is that? Well, as I say, my key thing, I'm thinking about this, is that there is a fundamental philosophical difference between what Gorbachev represented, often in however flawed a way, and what Putin stands for. And that can be summarized as hope versus victimhood. After all, a central tenet to Gorbachev 
and his policies and his whole outlook was that there could be hope. A hope that things can change for the better. A hope that, and yes, often naively, things within even the Soviet Union could be improved. He came, after all, thinking originally that the basic system was sound. In some ways, he was the very last Marxist-Leninist. But the basic system could be sound, and all it needed was some tweaking, some of the, the worst rotten apples removed from the barrel, and also some general reforms. But the, basically, it could be fixed. When it became absolutely clear that that was not the case. Instead, we have him hoping that actually the Communist Party of the Soviet Union could be democratized, that it could be turned from an agent of repression, conservatism, and frankly self-interest into what it was meant to be, the vanguard of the proletariat, the force that could drive the country to a better future. That, of course, was a deeply naive and ultimately you know, a failed hope, but a real one. He hoped that there could be a positive end to the Cold War, that in fact two nations which had been threatening mutual nuclear annihilation could nonetheless find common ground and build something more positive. And not just simply out of a negative sense of we do not want to die in a thermonuclear apocalypse, but in a more positive sense that a new way forward could be found, one of peaceful and productive coexistence. A hope indeed for what he called the common European home which was in some ways a, a rhetorical flourish, but it meant something more. Again, it's something that has been long a uh, fundamental theme within Russian history, which is you know, how this country that regards itself as being European can actually become part of Europe. So you know, arguably one could say all his hopes have been dashed, but the point is he had those hopes. Contrast that with Putin, who from the absolute first has essentially been preaching a gospel, indeed arguably has built his entire political platform on victimhood, on this notion that the world is a dangerous and hostile place in which frankly no one can be trusted and Russia can do nothing but survive and resist. You know, he was elected originally amidst the, the fear created by these uh, mysterious, or should that be quote-unquote mysterious, apartment bombings that were sort of claimed to be terrorist attacks, but no one quite got to the bottom of that. And indeed, the conflict in Chechnya, the, the brutal war, which on one level, look, you know, what had happened, what was happening in Chechnya was it was sliding into a criminalized anarchy. But at the same time, it was posited as some kind of existential challenge to the whole nature of the Russian Federation. So from the very first, his has been a presidency founded on fear. And now it becomes fear, particularly of fifth columnists, of subversives within. And why are they so dangerous? It's because they are simply the extrusion of the constant threat from without, from essentially from the West. And we can see this in his rhetoric. As I said, not just victimhood, not just a sense that it's unfair how Russia is treated, but that in effect, therefore, Russia has no choice but to do the things it does. In September 2015, for example, he was at the United Nations, and, and this was obviously in the context of Syria and the, the recent uh, Russian intervention into Syria, and what did he say? He said, instead of the triumph of democracy and progress, we got violence, poverty, and social disaster. And then he added to the West, clearly, do you realize what you have done? 
So it's, it's very much this pushing about, well, you've done things, and therefore all we can do is respond. And that reflects, frankly, you know, a theme that goes back to his February 2007 Munich speech, which very much kind of marked the real shift from sort of early Putin, where there was still some hope that, for the most self-interested of, of reasons, you know, a, a, some kind of a cynical grand bargain could be reached with the West. Anyway, at that speech, when he was clearly talking about the notion that NATO expansion was a provocation, and he said, now they are trying to impose new dividing lines and walls on us, and making it clear that Russia could not, would not, but above all, could not allow that to happen. So from the first, it's this constant sense of, you're doing things, you're the ones who are causing this, and what can I do but resist? And this came up really, really clearly in his uh, February uh, television address in which he was, in effect, announcing the invasion of Ukraine. And in it, he says that in the recent experiences should serve as a good lesson for us because it has shown us that the paralysis of power and will is the first step towards complete degradation and oblivion. In other words, that basically, if we don't act, then terrible, terrible things happen. And that Russia is facing what he calls a kind of moral, sorry, a kind of modern absolutism. And particularly, you know, when it comes to NATO, we cannot stay idle and passively observe these developments. So again, there's always a sense that basically we can do nothing else. And specifically, when you're talking about the Donbass, if we look at the sequence of events and the incoming reports, the showdown between Russia and these forces cannot be avoided. It's only a matter of time. Russia cannot feel safe, develop and exist while facing a permanent threat from the territory of today's Ukraine. They did not leave us any other option for defending Russia and its people. I mean, this is the thing. On the one hand, you want to try to present Russia as a great power, as one of the poles of the international system. And on the other hand, you're also saying that it faces an existential threat from Ukraine, a country, what, less than a third of your size, not a nuclear power, etc., etc. And that you have no option. Now, you know, on the one hand, one can say, ah, but this is just rhetoric. This is just wanting to sort of say to the Russian people why he's doing what he has to do. But the point is, it is such a constant theme within his rhetoric that it clearly says something more. So I think it's very striking that, you know, on the one hand, he's talking about the sort of constant nature of threats from within and without, and threats that really come from people who are implacably opposed to Russia because of Russia, but also because that is the nature of the modern world, of, of the world, full stop, modern or, or ancient, that essentially everyone is constantly vying with everyone else, that you can never trust anyone, that even today's apparent friend is tomorrow's rival and the day after that's mortal enemy. This is a very, very hostile and uh, vulnerable world for Russia. And that therefore Russia is forced to act. It can do nothing else. Putin, for all his macho posturing on about himself, but also actually about Russia and its place in the world, you know, actually has a message of a lack of agency. That Russia is not really the master of its destiny, but just simply responds to this dangerous and zero-sum world. 
And I think that is the real philosophical difference between Putin and Gorbachev, and really why Putin cannot forgive Gorbachev. After all, hope will always shame fear. So that's just one other little observation which I wanted to make. I will leave a link to a non-paywalled version of my short piece in Spectator in the program notes, but there's lots and lots of often very good stuff out there on Gorbachev. I particularly mentioned a beautifully written piece by Leon Aron, which appeared in The Hill. Again, I'll include the notes. But for the moment, thank you all very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.